are again with another episode of Research Conversations Podcasts with host V. Vale. Today our guest is Robert Conway. I am Marion Wallace. Thank you. So I actually, I, I had a funny question for you. You did? Okay. Because, because I haven't Googled you or anything. Right. And Wikipedia you. And I probably don't that. show up. Oh, well, good. But anyway, the point is... I, I often ask myself questions along this line. And so my question to you is, let's pretend I'm starting with a blank slate with you. And how would Marcel Duchamp describe you? <laughs> I hope he would, dis- he would uh, catalog in some sense my ideas rather than my actions. That's conceptual art. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that's the way I understand conceptual art. You could yeah. be the world's greatest conceptual artist and, and no one would ever hear of you or even know what your fabulous ideas were unless someone wrote them down. Right. You know, and, and presented them, cataloged them, whatever you call it. Right. So what are your ideas? That's a good question also. Um, my ideas are mostly organizational. I, I get my uh, reward intellectually in life by accumulating, sorting, and getting meaning out of data. What kind of data? There's so much out there. Yeah, well, not data in the sort of... Uh, you know, electronic sense that we have, you know, data gathering uh, by, by huge machines. It's, it's more um, history. I like to know who was where, when, and who did they meet with, and who did they talk with, and what were they thinking when they decided to, in most cases, since I'm, I work in the art world, they decided to create something, or they decided to go to a community, or they decided to plug into a circle of a stylistic circle or a circle of influence of other artists or teachers or whatever. Um, as opposed to the interpretive side, where I find that the ego of the interpreter too often gets in the way of the historical record. So in most cases, I leave that to somebody else. And I try to provide as complete a foundation as possible of fact, organized fact, so that if people want to interpret, they can. And then hopefully it'll be a little more accurate than it might not be otherwise. And so let's talk about you. Like, um, did you go to art school? Did you go to college? Where did you? Where are you from, even? I'm from San Diego. I grew up on the beach. Oh. Um, I went to college in New England. Uh, Which one? Williams College. It's a tiny school in Williamstown, Massachusetts, hmm. in the far northwest corner of the state. That's an odd choice. Or did you want to get as far away from your parents as possible? How did you know? <laughs> Just a. I'm a parent, too, just an educated <laughs> guest. You take a ruler and you put one end of it at San Diego and go as far diagonally across the country and still stay within the boundaries of the United States, 
this is this about as far as you can go. I could have gone to Maine, I suppose, but but Northwestern Massachusetts was far enough. And uh, I went to graduate school. I I got my degree in English literature. Yeah, and uh, took a fifth year after my degree in art history. And then many years later, I went to graduate school in art history. Where? Princeton. It's a good school. Yeah, it was a good school. Uh, so that's that's my academic background. In San Diego, what did your parents do to allow you the freedom, or not not freedom, to do what you eventually did? I think they had a great respect for serious education, and they were. They were, you know, I think if I had majored in business or economics or something like that, they would have been a lot happier. But uh, the fact that I was going to a really good school and it was very demanding that uh, fit into their value system, I think. What did they do to pay the rent or buy the house or whatever you call it? What were their to economics? pay the tuition. E oh, tuition, <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> uh, well, this is, this is curious. Um, you know, I, rep, I, I manage Bruce Connors Trust, so I am a trust manager, I guess, if that's a title. And my dad was a trust officer in a bank, so he did the same thing for people, except that he did it with their finances, and I do it with Bruce's and Jean's art. Oh, manage, manage their assets for the benefit of the, of the client. But what about your mom? She was a housewife. Remember, this wow. is back in the 50s, right? We're probably about the same age. I'm 71. Well, yeah, the good old 50s, when women had the freedom to not work back then. Yeah. <laughs> now, or the opportunity, in most cases. Yeah. That's a complex question. You know, one of my favorite artists in the whole world lived in San Diego from, I guess, around 92 to 2001, and then she died. But she has a huge sculpture. I've always wanted to see it, UC San Diego. And her hmm. name is Mickey St. Paul. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen that. I've seen pictures of that. The UC San Diego was didn't exist until I, after I left. I think their first opening class at the university was a year or so after I left for college. So you didn't move back to San Diego after college? I, I did, uh, some, I, some years, quite a few years later, I, I went back to San Diego for a while. Oh. Yeah, I worked in a, uh, Crisis Intervention Center for Runaway Teenagers. Good. Yeah. Because of the weather, San Diego was a magnet for kids running away from all over the country. Because it was too. easy to live on the streets. Mm. Yeah. Or in the parks, mostly. Uh, so we gave them 72 hours, no questions asked, shelter and food. With the proviso that they, with our help, contacted their parents oh. and tried to work something out to get them back to the home or somewhere else if the home wasn't viable. 
Oh, that's that's a very interesting experience. Indeed. Yeah. Absolutely. Did you volunteer, or was it a paid position? Originally, I volunteered. Yeah, that's how. You, that was the main avenue into that mm-hmm. world. I mean, they had almost no money. You can imagine. Of course. Um, and uh, so volunteered, and then got hired. Someone. Someone was injured. They were in a car crash, so the place opened up. So I moved in, you know, and then just proceeds naturally mm-hmm. from there. Sure. Mm-hmm. Wow. And how did you get that idea to even volunteer there? I'd never thought of doing that. Uh, it, I had also been in the Peace Corps. You did? That's yeah. very idealistic. Yeah. Where did you go? Uh, Libya. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Bet it was different then. I, I don't know. I'm thinking of words like from the past like Idi Amin and... <laughs> it was a. This is before the um, the military coup, before Gaddafi came in. Um, although we were kicked out by his revolution, um, that happened the halfway through my tour, and so all Americans were were evicted. What good did you do over there? Good's the right word. Oh yeah, I taught English as a second language to fifth graders in the, in a tiny oasis village in uh, the Sahara, and it was a fabulous experience. A number of the kids, at the end of a year, you know, a school year, were could manage, could read, write, and speak English. It was terrific, a lot of fun, very hard. Also, that's a good year. That's when I sort of became an adult, the fifth grade, and started doing proactive things like tons of mail order <laughs> in the small town I lived in, which was had nothing. Wow. Okay, that all helps give you like more of an international meta perspective on life and history. Uh, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I regard myself as a historian mainly, and. I, my motto is, our lives are instant history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you try to be as accurate as possible. Absolutely, yeah. In what I do, and when I transcribe things like the Bruce Connor interviews, look, I try to get not one word wrong. Right. Incorrect. Right. And, um, et cetera. But, um, for some reason... Instead of doing your own art, you are doing this is maybe this is a different kind of art form to like um, what would Duchamp say again? He would probably say, well, maybe the sciences can be art too. <laughs> Work in the sciences or at the finances. Surely, the science. Uh, well, more than ever now. Yeah. All all the art exhibits are now science exhibits. I mean, you should see the the sound exhibit now at MoMA. That's at MoMA. Yeah, we uh, we missed the opening to that. We intended to go, but uh, we'll go probably this week. Yeah, it's it's got some really cool stuff. Yeah. Science, very sciencey. Yeah. So let me, if I can, tell you a little bit about what I've been doing with these interviews. I'm collecting an oral history of colleagues of Bruce Connor. 
Oh, that's the project. Yeah. Or maybe publication or website or both. Who knows? It's unpublished. Uh, I've shared transcripts with the curators at SFMOMA as several years ago when they were preparing the exhibition. And a lot of it, uh, if you read the footnotes <laughs> of some of the essays, got in as background information. I think it was very valuable to them. What I mainly do is I'm staying away from the art world professionals and talking to friends. Uh, I mean, like a good example is Tamara Friedman, his framer, who worked with him for 15 to 20 years in a very practical way, but gets a, um, gets a perspective on a personality that, you know, that is interesting and valuable. Mm -hmm. So um, I've done about 15, between 15 and 20 of these um, over the years, over the last eight years. Uh, Jean, I'm interviewing in multiple stages. We'd get about five or ten years at a time at a sitting. Um, and we've moved up to, I think we're in the 80s now. Uh, and what will happen with this, I don't know. That's the best attitude. Yeah. It's there for the record, you know, someday. It'll be a treasure trove for some, somebody. The Tamara Friedman framed that photo right there. Uh-huh. 30 years ago. Yeah. So I don't claim to know her, but I've dealt with her. She's terrific. She yeah, is. she was She's the a best. She's terrific, absolutely terrific. Fast. Yeah. And reasonable. So can I ask you some questions? Well, wait, I... I this is my interview. Okay. Um, you have to come back and... <laughs> yeah, you have to come back for me. Um, I, you know, I, I brought these two books out because I'm a huge fan of the interview style, much more than an autocratic narrative essay, whatever you call it, mm -hmm. written by one authoritarian voice telling you, quote, how, how it is, unquote. Uh-huh. And um, I, I think, um, I mean, I have kind of big, big ideas, I, I'd like to think, mm -hmm. which are not necessarily conventional. And so let, let's pretend you're an artist. Uh, what was that, how, how could we construct a CV proving you're an artist? You. Wow, that, that, that would take a, a lot of rearranging of my, <laughs> of my concept of myself, because I don't think of myself as an artist. Most people don't, but yeah. remember Duchamp said everyone's an artist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he had, I'm sure he had specific application, applicatory interpretations, meanings, whatever you call them, you know, but, but he wanted people to think bigger, you know. He also wanted the world to be a more interesting place. And but he thinks of himself more as a scientist, I think. Or, well, no, I, I think my primary identity is as an historian. Or, no, uh, we, can get, we can get in, I can get into this. Uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> We're playing a game. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a manager. There's an art to management. 
and a science. Yeah, but I, th I think it's, you know, you have to, to manage a project, let's say, effectively, you have to uh, know the personalities of the people involved, understand that they're in many ways probably more important than you are in whatever the subject area is or the, the action or whatever you're trying to accomplish. Arrange things, uh, organize things so that people are satisfied and productive, so that the rewards are great and mutual. Or mutual aid. Yeah. Yeah. So I, that's an art that involves content and personalities and emotions, psychology, finance, because things always cost, um, time management, so on and so forth. It's pretty complex, actually. And I think that's, that's what I do. But it's, it's again, art and science. So that, mm -hmm. hence my aphorism. Everyone is an artist and a scientist. Now, obviously, that's optimistic. Yeah. But because I, I say, oh, people say, oh, I didn't think of myself as a scientist. And I say, well, aren't, aren't you like me? Don't you want to know the way the world really works and not a bunch of BS we're told in the media? You know? Uh -huh. you know we, don't you want to know the real principles behind why this happened this way? The underlying, the causal. I'm not seeking the cause. You know, the DNA germ germinative principle behind why this phenomena happened or phenomenon happened. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the art is, has to do with timing, being an animal, you know, saying the right, it's kind of magic, saying the right word at the right time, and then you def diffuse a potential argumentation that's unpleasant, things like that. I'm sure there was an art to even entering Bruce's world and starting, you worked with him. No. I, I, oh, you did no, not. So you came on after. After, after he died. After he died. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I never met him. Oh, wow. Wow. The closest we came, we were on parallel paths, when he was working at Magnolia with Don Farnsworth on the digital prints and the tapestries. Oh, oh right. Uh, he would be there on Sundays, every Sunday, and I was there on Saturdays working with Don on uh, some multimedia, early multimedia projects that museums were putting into their galleries. So since Bruce would follow me on a weekend, the next Saturday I would hear what had happened <laughs> on the previous Sunday uh, from Don. And he was in there fixing the digital files, I understand. Exactly, was, yeah. I can't remember what year that was. Um, this was in the 80s. Uh, well, no, no, no. That early? No, 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 much, no, later, much yeah, later. Much later. Much later. Uh, gosh. I guess 2004. Just something before like that. he died. Yeah. That sounds more right to me. He was, you know, the engraving collages that he did are, are usually about this size. And they'd end up, that is, what, three by four inches or four by five inches. And to make a tapestry, that would be six by ten feet. The, the percentage of magnification is huge. So 
imperfections in the engraved lines that would be invisible to our eyes at the original scale would be really distracting at a blown up scale. So every imperfection in the line, the curved line, and the one that's parallel to it, an infinite number of lines, he'd go in and digitally take those out, pixel by pixel. I can see him doing that. Yeah. So that the tapestry looks amazing. Perfect. They're amazing. But I hadn't really thought about the process. Maybe the original was four by five inches or something. Yeah, because there, you know, there were illustrations in nineteenth-century um, English news newspapers. Collage things. Yeah, exactly. Same yeah. same sources. So is that how you sort of ended up meeting the people, whoever? I, no, I yeah. was, um, after, I, I, had, I was good friends and had worked for many, many years with Paula Kirkaby, the gallery, gallerist in Palo Alto, who was very close to Bruce. Um, she had represented him in the gallery there. You know, the, the uh, fingerprint project that he did called Prince, this steel box with all his fingerprints. Went, you know about that? I don't know that one. Well, that was a major conceptual project of his. Um, he was going to teach at one of the community colleges in, on the peninsula. And in order to, uh, in order to um, become an employee of the state to teach at a state school, you had to be fingerprinted. And he approached that concept from the fact that his fingerprints were unique to him and his personality. So they were worth something. And he was reluctant to uh, go in and give his fingerprints to, at the police station in Palo Alto. So Paula went with him and they devised this project where all the documents and all the fingerprinting and all that became uh, he copied all of it with transcripts from the officials there and put it in a big in a gray box, a metal box, and that became one of his first conceptual pieces. Mm. It's called Prince. Wow. Anyway, so what, Paula. What had, year was that? Uh, boy, you're testing me. Um, Approximately. 70s. That early? Definitely the 70s, yeah. I, I heard him mention Paula, but I didn't know who she was. Well, I think in the 80s, I might have gone to Palo Alto to see his big punk photo blow-ups. The Would collages, the big no, collages? No, they weren't collages. They no. were prints. Uh huh. Maybe they weren't huge, but they were large. Well, yeah, yeah, blow okay, yeah. Yeah, well, that, he, she, she had a show there. That was her, her gallery. Okay. Yeah. So Paul and I were old friends. We'd, we'd done projects together over the years, trading things. And, uh, From what year about? Oh, you said old friends. Uh, well, we met when I was working in New York, so that would have been 35 years, 35 years ago. 35 years ago was like 1982. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, anyway, after Bruce died, several weeks after Bruce died, she called me. Oh, she called you. Yeah, and and she said, "Would if I, would I be willing to help Mrs. Connor?" Oh. Um, Bruce had recently died. It had been a difficult illness over a long period of time. 
It was a huge amount of material, and Paula thought I could help. So I said, sure, of course. So you moved from New York. Well, I was in New York working for a while. Yeah, yeah. But, but we moved back to California. My wife and I were both Californians, but we came back as soon as we could. <laughs> to here, to Oakland, I mean? To Oakland. Where you can afford to get a house. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay, well, that all kind of makes oddly evolutionary sense. Sure. Um, there are no accidents in life, cosmos. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. And you can sort of try to look at everything as a maybe an opportunity, we hope. <laughs> oh, I firmly, <laughs> firmly believe that. Do you have any um, recollections of what people would tell you went on with Bruce when he was fixing his little graphics? All right. They said they'd fill you in on how it went or something. Uh, well, Don, uh, he didn't talk about it a lot, but he, he did point out that Bruce learned how to use Photoshop very quickly. And uh, you would expect this, mm -hmm. that he... Uh, caught on and absorbed a new technique or a new technology quickly and then really got into it so thoroughly, 100 percent, 120 percent. Right, they look it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was his ego at stake, and he sure had a big ego in my opinion, but I guess every artist has to, or they'll never, quote, make it, unquote. Well, you certainly have to have a lot of I can't think of a harder job than being an artist. Really? Yeah. I think that's probably the most demanding profession one can be in, even if it's not professional, even if you're just... I think that, that artists are compelled. They don't have a choice to be artists. You know, why aren't they a banker or a lawyer? They don't... It's just impossible. You can't. You have to follow that. And you expose, you're exposing yourself continually. Every work that you create, if you, unless you hide it, you're exposing the most intimate part of yourself to people who may or may not understand it or appreciate it or even bother to look at it. You know, I, I find that astonishing. Mm. I couldn't do it. I wouldn't, there's no such word as couldn't in my world. <laughs> Well, I choose not to. <laughs> that's better. You haven't done it yet. Okay. All I right. Mean, I've still got some time. You but... have time. Yeah. Okay. You know, that's that's the way to look at life. Not put pose any restrictions on yourself ever. You know, just say the word yet. Haven't done it yet. Haven't done it yet. <laughs> <laughs> so you must have been pretty heavily involved in the show that now is in Spain, is it still? Oh, it's come home. Yeah, oh. it uh, it closed. Here we are in July, April, late April, I think. All the work has been returned. We've gotten everything back. It's all tied up and done. Where do you put it all? It doesn't fit in this house, does it? No, we have we have storage uh, at a safe art art storage place. Um, but a lot of the stuff in the show came from other museums and from private collectors. Ah. 
we loaned a lot of stuff. I mean, that we, the trust, did, of course, but no, by no stretch was it a majority of the pieces. But that was part of what I was able to do for the museums was to tell them where everything was. Database. Database, exactly. And I made that database av available to them. But you made it. I made it. Um, and uh, it's obviously protected, so it, uh, you, no one can get at it except if they have a password. So I gave them access, and they used it extensively. Right, yeah. And that must, let's see. That must have taken how many years? Uh, more than three. Okay. We were working together about three years before it opened in New York. Okay, you were working with the museum. Yeah. Okay, and Jean was? Definitely part of the yeah, process. Right. Yeah. They were the curators here, particularly Gary Garl. Thank you. Was very inclusive. He would he would bring us in from. The, just when it was a faint idea, all the way up through all the decision-making steps. Um, he was terrific in that regard. Okay, I, I, so he's tied in with the museum. He's the chief curator here at the SF, at, okay. SF MoMA. Okay. And, and it was really, he originated the show. It was his baby. Okay. Um, there were two more curators here. There were three, four in New York. Uh, there were two in Madrid. So it was a big group. Okay. Was Madrid kind of the whole thing, pretty much? Or did they have to... They edited. Um, they did a very good edit, I thought. Uh, from the point of view of people, the public in Madrid would not be as familiar with Bruce Connor as the people in New York or San Francisco might be. I think that's a f reasonably safe ass assumption. Mm -hmm. So take any one of the categories, um, the ink blots. You remember here, there were two rooms of ink blots. There were probably 30 to 35 ink blots. So in Madrid, that was cut down to say 20. Okay. Uh, still gave you a very strong understanding, representation of that body of work, but, you know, it, it wasn't as immersive, but it didn't need to be. And that, at least that's my take sure. on it. Sure, okay. So it was a very clean edit. Good. Um, and it looked great. Yeah. Wow. I mean, those ink blots, the large ones, I just cannot picture. I mean, all those folds. I mean, oh. And... Think about it this way. It's not each one of those little units, those little bugs or whatever you want to call them. Right. That's not one blot. That is three or four blots. Oh, is that what he did? He didn't draw half of that entire unit okay. at once and then blot it. He drew, let's say, the perimeter. Oh. Or he drew one of the little things inside and then blotted it and then drew another. So he, the, each one of those is a composition. Within a composition, so there might be a hundred or two hundred of those in a, one of the big sheets, right? The thirty by forty sheets. So you got to think of each 
that explains a little bit, though, how it was even possible because they were so clean. They're absolutely, yeah, total control by breaking down the okay. lot, the gesture into s small units right. and building that little thing and then moving on to the next one. <laughs> and he did a lot of practice ones because he would give them. I have a few. Yes, just, singles. He was trying out his technique, I guess. Yeah. There are some sheets, oh, let's say 20 by 24 sheet of paper with the single crease down the center. These were early ones. And a very large one-unit composition. Yeah. So the lines are thicker and the shapes are much bigger. Still is complicated, but on a, on a much bigger scale, mm. two feet. I don't remember seeing that. No, uh, we, we have some in the estate. They're, they've been shown a couple times in New York, but not, they haven't really gotten out yet, or we haven't sent them out yet. Okay. That's part of the management. All right, to eke it out over time, sort of. Yeah. Yeah, release it. Time release. Like Advil or something. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> oh. Well, I mean, everyone's life is so com complex, you only ever know part of it. So, you know, you could you could do a project now or 20 years ago, the unknown Bruce Connor, and, and then reveal different sides of him if you had enough time and inclination. Sure. I mean, like, for example, I'm sure he... I, w I would slightly unkindly call him a control freak. And, you know, with, with all the negative implications of that word. But, but uh, the positive implications are very complex work can be done exactly the way he wants it. And he only releases the perfect stuff or whatever he thinks is perfect in, in the case of the influx. But... I know that he just looked at, at all life as various media to do something in. I, that's the way I look at life. Mm -hmm. yeah, and, and he had designs of being a record producer. And, and he worked out a deal trading art with, you know, what's his name? Patrick, I just blanked out on Gleason. his name. Gleason. Um, I haven't seen him in so long. Hope he's still alive, and um, yeah, and he recorded friends of mine, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because I was in the punk scene, mm -hmm. kind of from day one, from day zero, and he rec he got the Dead Kennedys made an album, but it never came out because Jellaby offer the lead singer, songwriter, conceptualist, talker theoretician, all that, behind the dead Kennedys, just went at loggerheads over what you call the, the mix. Mm -hmm. And Biafra hated his idea of a good mix. Hated Bruce's idea. Yeah. Uh -huh. And somehow Bruce, because he's working with Patrick, he could get in there and do a mix, probably not even telling Biafra, I'm going to take all the tracks and adjust the volumes here. You know what a mix is. Mm -hmm. You maybe bring up the bass here, but bring it down, bring the vocals up here, bring the rhythm guitar mm -hmm. up here, down, etc. And then you have 
a, a gestalt or a you have a finished song, mm-hmm. and, but it's according. But you know, as we have seen, I don't know if you've personally experienced this, but there's been a lot of records that that sold a lot or not. But then it's just like with a film. Uh, later on, you have the the filmmaker's cut. Right, or the director's cut, or something. That's like. the word, yeah, director's the cut. The director's cut. And and the same, and you have that with with um, Iggy Pop, for example. I mean, he put out what he thought was a he had a better version of an earlier classic album, mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Sure. And um, and they can be quite different. Same basic tracks, but the mix right. can really make quite a difference. And so this never came out. Now, I doubt if those tapes still exist, but I have a feeling they do somewhere. And if that album were put out, which for legal reasons it probably never will, um, that would be another side of Bruce Conner, sure. the artist. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, the idea, the issue of control is certainly big for Bruce. For everyone. For everyone. Uh, but his work certainly manifests an enormous desire and ability to control what he's, what he's doing, down to the, um, the fine motor control. From the biggest concept down to the tiniest gesture, he, he was able to, to exert successfully a lot of control. On the other hand, specifically with the Inkblots, he, when he would make what we would call a mistake, he would refer to it as an opportunity. So he had this extremely tight, from one point of view, you could call it tight, uh, strict, clearly defined sense of what he wanted, but at the same time he was open to the chance, gesture, the mistake, that would lead somewhere else. So, you know, that to me is evidence of, of, a, of a balance or, an ev- you know, it's a highly evolved artistic sense. If you can have both of those at the same time and keep them somehow operational, astonishing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But the secret history of Bruce Conner, I mean, think, think of what you could summon it's probably impossible to do, but to recreate and understand his film editing technique. You know, the razor blade. I mean, take a movie, you know, how many cuts are there in a movie at first, his first film? Count up the, the, the number of splices. Mm-hmm. So uh, just think of how, how did he do that? And then on one little frame, he would make he, you know, he'd scratch something or he'd add something. He'd hand manipulate the frames. So from the very beginning, he's doing the same kind of detailed, micro-detailed work that you see. And then through the felt tips mm-hmm. and the ink blots and the tapestries, I mean, it's all just astonishing. Yeah, it is. It is. And he did tell me once that he um, would change a film. I mean, he'd release it and then he would actually edit it some more and for the next time that he was going to show it. So there wasn't a... There wasn't a definitive version, yeah. A report, the one about the Kennedy assassination, there are seven different versions, I think. 
And the Maryland one. Yeah. Well, there's Maryland times two, Maryland times five, Maryland right. times seven. Right. Yeah. Keep editing till you're dead. <laughs> Someone brought up the idea once with this museum show that it would have been really hard to do that show if Bruce was alive. <laughs> Jean said that. Um, and she, uh, yeah, I, I think that's probably accurate because he would have wanted to exert the control over the product with the same degree that he would assert over the creation of his own work. Right. The problem with that, of course, is that an exhibition involves lots of people. And a lot of considerations. And a lot of considerations and, and a lot of expertise in areas that no one person right. has. Um, Rudolf Freeling, the film curator, media curator at SFMOMA, he's, he said once that that's the reason the Soul Stirs movie never got off the ground. It was never completed. Because it, a project that large required management, get back to where we were talking earlier. Right. All of Bruce's other films were solo. Just him. Right, that's true. But the solster is involved cameraman, multiple views, mixing, and uh, that wasn't his skill set to, to get other people to work in concert to produce right, true. a product. But there was also, I think, he said, the issue of the rights and how... A lot Definitely. of the musicians saw film, they saw money, and where's our money? And they're really, they didn't realize it really wasn't any money. No, there wasn't. Right. There wasn't any money. Yeah. So I think that was a sticking point, yeah. too. Yeah. Well, that Bruce collage up there that he, that he traded me for a ton of typesetting work I did on the Soul Stirs album. Project. Yeah. Because I was a professional typographer. Yes. I had a huge machines in this place. And I made a lot of money working for ad agencies. Mm. And um, so he, so I would do all these generations of type and keep changing them and slight pain, but Bruce. Yeah. And I don't know. So I knew it was, I mean, that's just another thing that. He's, I think he was probably good at knowing a lot of people like me that he could trade art for instead of paying them cash. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did print. I got film prints. Right, for working for, doing for him. Yeah. Help on the Solsters. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's funny, I didn't really know you then, but mm -hmm. I was working on the typography end and, and graphic design end <laughs> for an album that never came out. Well, this was for the film. I mean, I it was, was Oh, I didn't know it was a film, whatever it was. I didn't know what it was. It was, was. I thought it was an album that was going to come out, too. Maybe it was. I've never heard. Vinyl I, days. I've never heard of an album. Well, that's Huh, but you were doing, me. you were doing typesetting for type a cover? Set, uh, I, what I, you no, thought was a cover? I, let's put it this way. I just did what he told me to. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, oh, that's not big enough, that type. Make it bigger here, smaller there. I mean, it's just complicated. But it wasn't like for rolling titles on the film or something? Or I title didn't cards. know. I really, it could have been for title cards, but I thought it was also an al a music album project. 
more than a film. Mm. But Bruce is a funny guy. He, he's maybe he's very secretive too, and he everything he tells you is on a need to know basis. I mean, he's always trying to surprise me when I work with him in Search and Destroy. It was a slight pain, but you know you have to you have to be very fast at reacting. <laughs> But you were working on the film. What what aspect of the film did did you help? I on? was assisting. I was like an assistant editor. Uh huh. And there was a short period of time he hired an editor. I can't remember his name. And he worked for several weeks. He would sit with the editor, and then I would be like filing trims and things, mm -hmm. and putting the stuff away and organizing the actual. Because they're talking about sixty millimeter film, and mm -hmm. then the sound is separate. So Bruce would work with the editor in the morning, and then he'd leave the editor because he had to go to bed right. you know, in the afternoon. And then the next day, he'd complain about what the editor had done. Well, you were there the next day. And then the editor, I, 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 he let him go at some point, just decided to do it himself. It was a professional guy who was trying to make a film that looked good to him, but Bruce had very specific, you know, just gestures that the people were doing were important. And the guy had no way of knowing that. Anyway, mm. and then I did some sound recording. And that was here in San Francisco? Mm -hmm. Except the sound recording was somewhere in Texas. Mm. He went to talk to some of the people and interviewed yes, them. Yes, right. Yeah. Yes, that's mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's important though that complexity. Well, it's important not to pretend it's not there. That's for sure. There's always more to the story. That's that's what I say. With all my interviews I've ever done are just the tip of the iceberg. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, how can you be an artist now? Let's <laughs> let's go ten years ahead. You know, come on. You can do it. You have it in you. You've been exposed to so much art. You can. You can do it. I mean, really. I'm serious. Yeah. And yet I'm also, you know, I like to have smiles in my interviews. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I've got ten years. Uh, yeah, ten years. And you know a hell of a lot as a database from which to become an artist, to draw on, to make art. Whatever art is in Fobox. Right. And it depends... On the media, there's many media out there. You can be an artist in many media, not just one. Okay, uh, I would say that that uh, I choose the medium of biography. Writing. Yeah. Writing. Writing. Yeah. That's hard, boy. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, that's why I like I'll to need do twenty years. <laughs> twenty years. <laughs> if I started. I'll start when I get home today. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see you in 20 years. No, but think about that. That's pretty challenging, isn't it? Well, everything's challenging, but to, you just do a little bit at a time. Yeah, write a biography. I mean, we're, we're, a day. We're, in a golden, a day. we're in a golden age of biography, I've mm. heard someone say. I mean, I've never are, heard that phrase. There are biographies coming out. Up the wall, like, too. Uh, Anthony Carroll, is his name Anthony? But his last name is Carroll, his multi-volume biography of LBJ. I mean, you, you go in the library, there are yeah. huge biographies of everybody. Mm -hmm. Barry Miles wrote some really good ones. Yeah. And 
talk about tip of the iceberg. You know, you could write 500 pages on someone's life, and you would, if you divide that in the number of days that person was alive, you devoted a few words to each day, right? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. So, how do you operate at that distance above the daily grit, and still, and you're still true and thorough and complete? Well, you can't be really thorough, but you can at least. Like that, like there's funny little aphorisms to live by scattered in all these, in both of these books. If you want those, you know, insights. Uh, sure, little gems. Little gems. I love aphorisms because at least you can memorize them. You can't memorize every word of any of these books, but you can take with you for the rest of your life a few aphorisms. So you want those in your art project. Mm-hmm. And. Um, but you have to have some kind of plot build and payoff. And I mean, yeah, the art, the so-called arc, arc. of the narrative. Um, but the, you know, the thing about interviews is the subject of the interview is cannot be totally free of being self-conscious, right? Well, I think that. That's the holy grail you reach for, where somebody, it could be me, it could be you, it could be Mary, has said something they've never said before in their life, and that's called a new thought. Mm -hmm. And that's the holy grail of an interview Right. for me. Right, sure. Because it's based on what you call the third mind concept, that two minds can sometimes form some something, some creative entity temporarily that bigger than could ever be separately the third mind mm-hmm. what other artists did you work with if you have art history and you're mm. pursuing art right um, when I moved back to California I was st- struck by how I'd spent years in New York and didn't know anything about California art I mean, this is back in the 80s. The prejudice, the the insularity of New York was astonishing. Hmm. Um, They call it provincialism. Yeah, provincialism. There's a famous New Yorker cover of of, uh, the Hudson River is the boundary of New York consciousness, and out there is who knows what. Um, so when I got back here, I felt like I was, I, I was so ignorant, especially as I'd grown up in California. I, I felt like I better, better you know, learn something about this. Uh, so that eventually led to I did catalogs, uh, complete catalogs on two and started on a third California artists. Uh, June Wayne, who was the founder of Tamarind Lithography Workshop in LA in the 60s. Bruce worked there. Um, the, the other, the, the co-founder of Tamarind, Clinton Adams, who ended up in New Mexico. So these are, these are artists who were, who came of age during the war, Second War. And we're practicing, let's say, from the 
late 40s until they died. And the third artist was Nate Oliveira, who uh, taught at Stanford for many, many years. Uh, grew up in Niles, down by Fremont. So those projects involved spending lots of time interviewing the artists, putting their work out on the table, talking about each object, going, you know, go on for several years, mm. and then I produced the catalog. And was it for their show, or just for no, them? No, just for them. Oh. In, in, in all three cases, I didn't plan it this way, it just happened, they were all um, at the end of their lives. And so this was, again, this was not intentional, but I provided them with an opportunity to sort of review and sum up mm -hmm. their entire career. Wow. Um, and you found them. Somehow. We were, yeah, I mean, I'd known them for a number of years. In Nate's case, uh, he and I were shared a ride to a... To a um, a symposium back in New York and I didn't know him, he didn't know me, but we sat next to each other in a car. Um, and that led to, you know, mm -hmm. one thing led to another. Kept in touch. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. So these were people approximately of our parents' generation, mm -hmm. more or less. Okay. And did they sort of hire you or? In How did the money thing work? It, yeah, uh, the money thing worked through the publishers of these catalogs. Oh, you found publishers. Yeah, yeah. Rutgers University did did the first catalog. Uh, uh, University of New Mexico did the second one. The third one, Nate was funding himself, uh, but then he died. So wow. it's okay. sort of in limbo. Okay. Wow. Let's see if UNM might revive it. Stanford would be the one to revive it since he, he was on the faculty. Oh, uh, I, I'm confused. Yeah. Uh, Clinton Adams? Clinton Adams, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Oh, yeah. Well, that's logical. So you kind of zoomed in on, it sounds like, through your career specific people, detail. I mean, don't you ever feel like there's just so many art smells, like you could never even it, hear of most I, of them? I think I read there's 10 million people on the planet declaring in their income taxes their artists. And I say, how can you memorize 10 million curriculum vitae of them? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, open any art magazine. Yeah. And Thousands. Their ads or their one artist shows for people I've never heard of. And the next month, there'll be a whole bunch of ones I've never heard of either. And they're all, you know, deserving of absolutely. attention. Absolutely, absolutely. Whatever. Yeah. Sales. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. It's a tough, tough world. And there seems to be, it's like in the art world, too, the one percenters are making all the millions and then everyone else is scrabbling along. They're, they're grabbing any teaching gig they can get. And, yeah. You know, whatever. Yeah. And the galleries, have you been to Chelsea recently in New York City? No. 
you'd be astonished. Uh, there are four or five galleries in Chelsea that are on the scale of museums. Small, wow. small museums, mm -hmm. but still. I mean, they're not a gal what you think of them as a gallery. They're, they're much more extensive. They have mm -hmm. huge rooms. Um, and show and hold the artwork too for sale. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and, and beautifully designed. They're all designed by architects, so they're enormous outlays of money. Wow. Um, very impressive, not uh, and open to the public. So, I mean, so you know anybody can go in, and it's like New York now has f twenty-five or thirty museums. Everyone's hoping they'll get the artist that then strikes it deep. Yeah, they hope they're, they can't, they hope yeah. to be the Conweiler who scored for practically no money Picasso, Brock, Durain, Vlaminck, Wangri, uh, Fernand Leger, um, first published Apollinaire, Max Jacob, Andre Masson. They're all hoping yeah. to be the him. Right. Or Leo Castelli with oh, yeah, that's Rauschenberg, Warhol, Johns, etc. Yeah. yeah. Did he? Is there a book on him? I don't have a book on him. I don't know. I, I would be surprised if there wasn't. <laughs> I, I can't imagine that someone hasn't written one on, on a, Castelli. A book like this would yeah. be nice because yeah. the, the questions are important, not just the, the facts. I mean, there's great questions in, like, this book, like, uh, haven't you forgotten some of your painters, Monsieur Conwiler? Yes, I have. You cut me off just in, I was going to say a little bit more about Andre Baudin, B -A -B, who's not famous to me, B-E-A-U-D-I-N, the man who, as I see it, best understood the great lesson of Juan Gris. Like Gris, he was a classical painter. Profoundly sensitive, to be sure, but one who subjected the excesses of passion, I love that phrase, to a lucid reason, I mean the whole, to a desire for order, clarity, purity. And it goes on, but, but there's beautiful writing or speaking mm -hmm. in these two books, you know, and be above and beyond mechanics of fact. You should name your two books. Oh, sorry. This is audio. Oh, yeah. This is, um, well, this is a fabulous series, Documents of 20th Century Art. My Galleries and Painters by Daniel Henry, probably pronounced Henri, Conweiler, K-A-H-N-W-E-I-L-E-R, with Francis Cremieux. These are translated from French. And, of course, this is like my Bible. I got both of these books in 71. When they came out, Dialogues with Marcel Duchamp, Pierre Caban. This is what all my work's based on, this book. With an appreciation by Jasper Johns, who I don't regard nearly as highly as Duchamp. <laughs> Costelli gave Johns his first show. Wow. And nothing sold, except yeah. for two pieces that Costelli bought. That's the way... To do it. Yeah, but not any longer. That that phase of finding the undiscovered. It's over. That's over. The, Everyone's. The economy can't support that model anymore. You have to. I have, would. Ag I would agree. What? How so? What do you mean? 
there's so, everything is inflated so much, not only the rewards, but the expenses to maintain these galleries, to go to all the art fairs. You know, oh, that you, didn't used to exist, art fairs. No, I mean, how much does it cost to have a booth in an art fair? Tens of thousands. Tens of thousands. Tens of thousands. So if you've got, you have to have the capital to do that. So you can't, you can no longer afford to bring artists along from nothing to something. You have to get them, they're already something. Uh, that's a problem. Well, there's a young woman here, early 20s, who single-handedly built up Chris Johansson's career, because he's a globe-trotting artist now. But she developed his career. I hope he's still with her or something. But he has shows all over the place. Do you, are you familiar with Chris Johansson? Mm -mm, not. He's been at MoMA and... Yeah. Yeah. And when was that, 2010, 2011, 2012, one of those years? And even earlier, just one piece in some survey show. Well, he, he's part of what they call the mission school. It's always handy to develop a, a, a label, like the Cubus, mm -hmm. you know, for, right. for marketing, branding reasons. The mission school refers to living in the mission? Yeah. Huh. And the four or five artists, I think Cal Spelotech is trying to attach himself oh. to to the group. Hmm. But, uh, Barry McGee. He's oh, the most yeah, famous. I know Barry yeah. McGee. He's the most famous. And then his girlfriend, wife, whatever she was, had died so long ago. Margaret Kilgallen. They have their international careers now, sort of. Alicia McCarthy. Mary McGee's the most famous, definitely. Mm -hmm. Chris Johansson the second, probably. And Ruby Neri, you know, Manuel Neri's daughter. You probably had a class from him at Art Institute. Yeah. I mean, that's we're nostalgic for the days when when there would be small groups of friends and then years later they become famous but it was an organic thing mm -hmm. you know when they weren't famous they were staying up all night talking about this that and the other and trading technical tips and technique I mean tips and things like that so do we think that Bruce Conner is famous he wasn't in my book famous because I have had hundreds of interns over the years that are like smart, 20 years old, 19. None of them knew him. <laughs> film students would know him, but we, you didn't get film students. Mm -mm. You got like English students. I got English students right. who wanted to be yeah. writers or publishers yeah. or whatever. Bruce had a dealer in New York when he was still in college. Hmm. And none of the faculty in the art department had dealers in New York. <laughs> but one of their students did. So they thought he was a real upstart. Right, I'm sure. Um, so, I mean, that, to get a New York gallery when you're still in college is pretty amazing. And, and so he had gallery representation his entire career. And just as, as that being one metric, that's successful. Right. You know, because sure. many artists never get a gallery their entire life. And he had one from when he was 20. Right, and then several more. Oh, yeah, obviously. yeah, yeah, 
right. Holly Anglum, Noah. Yeah. Right, and the Palo Alto. That's Gallery. Smith Anderson. Yeah, yeah. And he, he mentioned Paula, but I'd forgotten her last name. Kirkby, yeah. Yeah, so, and Bruce sold. I mean, he didn't sell in the beginning, but he, he stored his work. I'll back up. The number of almost the great majority of work that's in the trust are drawings. So they're things on paper, and they're, that's very fragile, vulnerable work. But easy to store. In easy to store space. because, yeah, because they're flat. And the, I would say 99% of the work is in perfect condition. And, and that could be something that he did in, in 2005 or something that he did in 1955. He kept those things through all the moves. Including that he, Mexico. Mexico, uh, Brookline, Wichita, etc. And, and so he, his degree of control and care extended to the objects and keeping them. Right. So. Oh, good. Yeah. What was the um, subject or style of the lithographs? They were um, his uh, felt-tip drawings oh, from wow. the mid-60s. Okay. And he, he had them all photographed. And then he uh, he corrected the photos to make sure that just like he did with the Photoshop and the tapestries, mm -hmm. if he was using a needle or whiteout right. on the negatives, then he took them to a to Kaiser Press in Oakland. It was a commercial litho shop, and trained the printers how to use archival paper, which they'd never wow. had any need to work with. Um, and I guess there must be about 30 editions, roughly. Each edition is between 50 and 100 impressions, so that's a lot of pieces of paper. Mm -hmm. wow. And they're beautiful. Mm -hmm. they're, they're extremely well printed and on good paper. And, you know, you can tell that it's not the original ink drawing, that it is a reproduction photographically, but they're still stunning. And were any of those in this museum show? I didn't remember. There, you'd have to look very hard to find them. Okay, they were with the other. They were in no, they were in the in some of the cases. Mm. Um, the only one on the wall was the one he did for the San Francisco Dancers Workshop. Do you remember that? It's it's more of a poster. It's kind of, it's quite large, but it's it's the uh, the '60s ink blot. I mean, 60s felt tip okay. style. I think I do. It's, yeah. It was towards the very end of the show. Right. There's a case on, the, on your way out, and it was on mm. the wall there. Well, he was doing those. Oh, they weren't ink blots. They were um, those sort of squiggly felt tips. Yeah. In the 70s. Too. 60s. And, well, I mean. They weren't invented until the 60s, those. The, the, the first. I remember when Ferlinghetti was so amazed because he's an artist, a quote unquote visual artist, and he was. I remember him rejoicing to me over, "Wow, this this got invented in Japan. It's called a pen pal, you know." Mm -hmm, he just mm -hmm. then there were competing brands, I'm sure. Yeah, later. there were. I think there were three brands, um, and the ink 
was the ink was color fast in only one of the brands. Mm. And Bruce did, uh, in the beginning, used all three. Mm. And one of them would turn uh, purple, and one would turn sort of a rust color, sepia, and the third stayed black. Wow. So you can find, right. there are very few of them, but you can find some of those ink blots, uh, excuse me, felt tips that were drawn with the, the ink that wasn't color fast, mm -hmm. and they turned. I think I have one of them. They're still beautiful, yeah. but yeah. they're purple instead of black. Right. The one, I remember mine was black, but the paper had turned sort of off-white or yellow. That would be from sun, probably. It was late, though. It yeah. was in the, I think it's dated the 70s. Huh. Hmm. Yeah, but the felt tip allowed you to draw a continuous line that d was uninterrupted. That's you just true. keep on going forever. That's the virtue. You don't have to keep dipping it in an inkwell. Uh, continuous line forever. And a ballpoint won't do that. You know, a, it won't? This one will. Well, that's, I mean, that's not a 1960s ballpoint. That's a, oh, no. That's a no. much more sophisticated version. I don't know what it is. It's from Japan, though. Well, should we have well, some kind of wrap? Yeah, let's have a wrap sum up. up a sum up. Well, okay. We, well, okay, so you're going to, we expect in 20 <laughs> years for you to declare yourself an artist historian. Biographer. The publication of the, of the biography, of somebody's biography. I'll okay. send you a copy. Okay. Signed. Signed. <laughs> <laughs> permanent felt, too. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Absolutely. Pentel. Okay, and we're all, we're all, remember, we're all going to be artists, scientists in the future. Right. Agreed. <laughs> Resolved. Okay. Okay, well, thank well, you very much, Robert Conway, for coming to the research headquarters. And you're very welcome. And doing some real-time thinking, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Not at all what I expected to be doing. <laughs> well, okay. expect, expect nothing. That's kind of my outlook, too. Good. Expect everything. Or, or there was an old or aphorism. Anything. Old aphorism for this. I love aphorisms from the 6th century Heraclitus, something about hope for the unhoped for. <laughs> right, or sleep child. Hope for the best, but plan for the worst. Oh, yeah, um, that's a more modern, pragmatic. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us with the Research Publications Podcast.